are the future trends that are sneaking up on us rapidly? Beasley Media Group Vice President of Programming Buzz Knight interviews thought leaders of today on new innovations, new methods, new strategies, and new thinking on this podcast, Healthy Paranoia. Our Healthy Paranoia podcast to date has focused on new thinking and the trends surrounding us in technology. But on this edition, we start a series of podcasts on leadership and some of the most striking and impactful examples in our history. Doris Kearns Goodwin is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of multiple books capturing the beautiful essence of many of our presidents from Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR to LBJ in stunning and vivid detail. Her experiences working for President Lyndon Johnson shaped her passion and brilliance as a historian, and her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, focuses on the four presidents in an examination about their growth and development of leadership. In this episode of our podcast with my pal Doris Kearns Goodwin, we're going to talk about the complex leadership of Lyndon Baines Johnson in her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, available now from Simon & Schuster. Doris, tell the story of that first speech that he gave when he was 22 and how that speech really shaped him. He was at a picnic, Lyndon Johnson was, young Lyndon, where there were a bunch of politicians there. It was sort of the opening picnic for campaigns that would be done that fall. And they called for a governor who was running for the office to come and appear and speak on his behalf, and the governor wasn't there. So they were, it was like, one, two, three, if he's not there, nobody can speak on his behalf. And the governor evidently had given his father a job at one point. So young Lyndon runs up to the stage and says, I'll speak on behalf of Governor Neff. And he just gave this wild, you know, hands running all over the place speech that really caught the attention of the crowd. It was very unsophisticated but full of passion and full of energy, and somehow young Lyndon was launched into that political world. How did his time as a uh, principal in the elementary school also define him? This was a very important experience for him because up until the point when he left college for a year in order to make money and he became a principal in this small Mexican-American school, he was really a person just wanting power, it seemed, for its own sake. You know, he ran the student government from the behind, he had this extraordinary means of figuring out how to get power. When he got to college, he knew that he had to get close to the president of the college in order to exercise power. So he became part of the janitorial crew mopping outside the president's door so the president would see him. Next thing you know, he's inside the door, you know, being a clerk for the president of the college. Next thing you know, he's the appointment secretary for the guy, and he's telling other faculty members when to come in and out. So that was somebody seeking power for its own right. But when he got to this small school in Catula, he saw the pain, as he said, of prejudice on the faces of these kids, and he wanted to do everything he could for them. So he used part of his first salary to buy them soccer balls and basketballs, and they had no gym equipment at all. He was the principal. He was the teacher. He was the band leader. He was everything at the school. And they've done oral histories of the kids in the school who said they never met a whirlwind like that, and he changed their lives. So that memory of that school stayed with him the rest of his life because later he goes on to still accumulate power for a while. He does some really good things for a while, but then once he loses the Senate race, he turns his back on all the progressive things he'd done. And then he finally comes back to wanting to be that guy he was in Catula. And when he gives the famous We Shall Overcome voting rights speech, he mentions that he's dealing with prejudice again. The Selma, Alabama marches have taken place. And he reminds the Congress, he said that in 1928, 
when I was teaching in Catula, I saw the pain of prejudice on these kids' faces. I never knew then that I would have the power to do something about it. But now, as president, I do, and I'm going to use that power. So it was an incredible circle, I think, in his life. Catula was really important. I love the description of him, uh, a human dynamo to students, uh, a steam engine in pants. <laughs> that is classic. I mean, they said he would walk so fast, it was like a blur going past you. He would be there before the school opened. He'd be there when the school closed. There was a sense of just fierce energy that he had, as much as Theodore Roosevelt. Probably they're the two with the, the most extraordinary amount of just physical energy. I mean, he didn't need to sleep. He didn't want to sleep. He was just on the go at every moment. All four leaders were incredible storytellers, obviously. How about LBJ? Talk about his storytelling. Well, LBJ could tell stories in two different ways. I mean, one, when he gave speeches, but even more importantly, when he's speaking to an individual that he's trying to persuade to do something. So when he's in the Senate, for example, he will know that that senator cares about getting a trip to Paris so his wife can go to Paris and he'll he'll find out about enough about him so that I know you know how about Paris I, I have a feeling you might always have wanted to go there I mean as if he doesn't know anything you know maybe I could get you on a delegation there so or when he's talking to Everett Dirksen the Republican minority leader and he wants him to back the southern um, to break the back of the Southern filibuster where the Democrats are split in two over the Civil Rights Act of 64. So the Democratic Southerners are going to mount a filibuster. He can't get it through with Democratic votes. He needs the Republicans. So he goes to Dirksen, the minority leader, and he'll, he'll give him everything he wants under the sun, you know, pardons, ambassadorships, anything you need in Illinois. But then he knows that Dirksen himself is a person who wants to be remembered. So, you know, Everett, he'll tell him this story. You come with me on this bill, and 200 years from now, school children will know only two names, Everett Dirksen and Abraham Lincoln. How can Dirksen resist? But then when he would give speeches, they would be best when he told a story. So he would tell the story of he had a black maid and her husband and a black cook and her husband, and they had to drive the car from Texas to Washington when he was a senator, and they would bring their dog in the car, the, the Lyndon Johnson dog, and one time, the husband is saying of the cook, saying, I, I really can't take the dog. And he said, why not? You love the dog. And he said, I do, but it's bad enough when we have to go alone to find a place to go to the bathroom, much less to have to take a dog on the bathroom. Now, it sounds so simple, but when you tell that story and you think about it, and then he'd tell it in even more broad fashion. And so my cook, she couldn't go pee anywhere. You know, <laughs> She couldn't find a place to stay at night. And then the dog is there. But somehow... You tell stories, as Lincoln said, people remember stories better than facts and figures. And the story of this woman who can't even get across the country in the South by having a place to go to the bathroom, having a place to rest, and having a place to stay at night really got to people because it's so ordinary. And uh, talk about his uh, empathy skills and how those developed over time. Yeah, I think he was born, too, in a certain sense, with enjoying understanding other people. They said even when he was a young kid, he loved to talk to old ladies in the town and ask them how they were doing and learn about what was going on in their life. And then he developed it more. I mean, he didn't come from a privileged background. So for FDR and Teddy Roosevelt, it was more unnatural to develop that sense of empathy. I think for Lincoln and, and LBJ, it came inborn more so. And then he developed it as he went along when he was in the NYA, the National Youth Administration, 
and he ran the best program in the in the country for getting young kids jobs and that feeling of excitement of knowing I can do this for these other people. He brought rural electrification power to his own hill district. And so he saw people in his farm area who had electric lights for the first time, and he could feel what it meant for them to be able to do that, not have to wash the clothes on a board. You could have a washing machine, you know, not to have to milk the cows with your hands because you could have a milk machine as long as it could be run by electricity. So I think he always had it. But then at times his search for power would override what those natural instincts were, but he finally came back to it in the presidency. Uh, Describe his first things first approach to leadership. I think what he realized right from the start was that you had to have a sense of priorities at every step along the way. So, for example, when he becomes president of the United States, and the most important thing is to get the civil rights bill through that had been stalled under JFK, but he knows if he goes right away for that, it will bollocks up the entire Senate. There'll be nothing else that gets through, and he will be a failed leader. And there's a tax cut that Kennedy had also been trying to get through. So he says, if I get that first, and that's not as hard to get as the civil rights bill, and then if the economy does well, then I will have a foundation under me when I go for civil rights. So he has to convince Harry Byrd to go along with this tax cut because he believed it and it was terrible to have deficits. In the old days, these congressmen cared about deficits for these senators. And, and he was right. He got, the civil, he got the tax cut first, and then he could get civil rights. And always he did that at every level of his power. And he obviously became president at, at one of the most uh, tumultuous times after you know JFK's passing. And you describe his leadership as, as visionary leadership. Um, he really came into his own as a leader uh, with that crisis, didn't he? Yeah, what I mean by visionary leadership in that case is the very first night when JFK is killed and he's sitting on in his room with two of his aides. They're sitting on his big bed watching all the coverage. You know, you're going to see the JFK cavalcade. You're going to see um, the killing of Oswald. I mean, the whole nation is transfixed to what he's seeing. But right that night, he has the vision of what he wants to accomplish now that he's president. He said, I want to get the civil rights bill through. I want to get the tax cut bill through. I want to get Medicare through for old old Harry Truman. I want to get aid to education through. I mean, every single thing. And voting rights. He mentions the five major bills that night, and I'm going to do what he said. And those all get accomplished in the next 18 months. So uh, we'll go over some of those important leadership things and get your reaction uh, from uh, about LBJ. First of all, uh, one of them, make a dramatic start. Right? Yes, he understood the importance in every position he was in of, of making an announcement. Here I am, in a certain sense. So when he first became Senate um, Majority Leader, what he did was to reward the freshman senators who were not getting really good assignments and he convinced the older senators that we can't just keep them frozen the way you're doing. And so they would forever feel that they were in his sway as a result of him doing that. And most importantly, when he became president, he knew that it, it wasn't his strength to give speeches, but it was his strength to go to Congress because that was the world he had known. So he decided that I will make a dramatic speech only days, four days after JFK is killed, and he'll go to the Congress and I'm going to call for a civil rights bill which meant he was risking everything. His advisor said, you can't do that. You're not going to get it through. It's going to get stuck. Your presidency will be a failure. And he said, what's the presidency for? Um, this is the time to throw in all the chips if you're a poker player. And it certainly was a dramatic start to go, right, to go right for those bills, to unlock the stalled Congress, 
and to give that great speech to the joint session of Congress four days later. Another one, uh, lead with your strengths. Yeah, well, I think that's what he understood, that he knew his strengths were not in foreign policy, unfortunately, and that would eventually lead to his downfall, that they were in domestic legislation. So that even though JFK had concentrated more on foreign policy than domestic, he reversed that concentration for the presidency and put all of the effort of his cabinet Every day he would ask them, what's going on on the Hill? How many bills have you gotten passed today? He'd have huge charts in his office that told him where every bill was at every moment. And he knew that was his strength, to mobilize the Congress. And so he focused on that until, unfortunately, the Vietnam War demanded some sort of focus on his part. Another one, simplify the agenda. Yes, again, I mean, there were maybe 20 bills that people wanted to get passed right away from different parts of um, of the spectrum. And he was going to simplify it down to what should we get first, the tax cut, second, the civil rights bill, and then maybe education, and then maybe Medicare. He just had a sense of how each success could lead to the next, and you had to simplify it and not ask for too much. So he knew in passing the civil rights bill that if he could have a target set, you couldn't just have a bunch of civil rights guys running around saying pass the civil rights bill. So he wanted to get something called the discharge petition passed in the House of Representatives, which would take it away from the conservative congressman. And that was a, that needed a certain number of votes. So he had a target, and that was what he meant by setting a target and then making people go for it. And they got the petition passed, the bill gets to the floor, and then it's on its way. He could be really charming to be around, but he could be impossible, couldn't he? <laughs> the interesting thing is in all the leadership literature, They'll talk about the importance when you're building a team of emotional intelligence, of you know, sharing credit, shouldering blame, never publicly humiliating your people. And he did it time and again. I mean, there, were t- there was one moment when he sees one of his aides um, writing a letter to his mother, and he said, can't you write that letter and take a crap on your own time, son? <laughs> and he's publicly humiliating this guy. And then the question you ask is, how did he create teams that worked so well together? And the answer that I came to understand was that they all saw that he was working harder than them. He would, like um, like the other people, be there in the morning and later at night than they would. But more importantly, they were on a mission to do things that mattered to the team members. When they're young members of the National Youth Administration, they know they're giving jobs to a whole generation of kids who would otherwise be, be lost. And they're willing to withstand the difficulty of his temperament at times because they know they're in a common mission. Absent that common mission, that kind of behavior would be impossible. The Johnson treatment, right? That's, that's what it was called, right? The Johnson treatment, which I experienced, meant that he would stand so close to you when he talked to you that you could hardly breathe. I mean, he violated the normal human space between people and would start persuading you of what he wanted you to do while your head is almost in his chest because he's standing <laughs> so close to you. But people would say they came away from the Johnson treatment and they had to do what he asked them to do. He was so towering, so persuasive, offering so many things in return, but also offering the idea that he really believed in what he was asking them to do. He would say what convinces his conviction, and he had it. So, yes, successful as he was as a leader, he also represents many lessons in failed leadership, right, that can, we can learn from. Right. I mean, it seems so ironical and sad that the very strengths he had as a domestic leader were not evident in his leadership of foreign policy. I think in part because he just didn't care about it. You know, he had no passion for it. 
and he tried to transpose what he was doing domestically onto the world scene. He thought, if I could only meet with Ho Chi Minh like I meet with senators, um, I'll get him to agree to stop the war in return for I'll have a Mekong River Delta project even bigger than the TVA, which will make the whole, the whole Vietnam flourish in, in agriculture. And the same extent, too, whereas he was always anxious to make decisions on domestic politics, he took center control. On foreign policy, he felt so inadequate about it, he had originally let the foreign policy guys, and they happened to be the Harvard guys, they happened to be the Kennedy people, for whom he felt this sense of too much awe because he hadn't gone to a Harvard or Yale. His father always told him, if you brush up against the grindstone of life, you'll have more polish than a Harvard or Yale person ever did. But he said, somehow I never believed him. And so as a result, he would just wait until he had to make a decision to not lose. That was really, instead of winning and wanting to create something, he would hold back until they're telling him, if you don't make this decision now, it's going to fall. And then he would back himself into it. But most importantly, he never really fully trusted the American people to tell them when the war wasn't going as well as they would. And so a credibility gap developed when it was clear that the war wasn't doing well. And he could never recover from that. So as you got to know him, especially in his later years, um, how did he want to be remembered? All that he really cared about was to be remembered for civil rights. It was an extraordinary thing because he came slow to it as a Texas senator. When he finally did come to it, though, it was with his real passion. And he knew that the war in Vietnam had cut his legacy in two, so he was very sad in those last years in the White House. But he said to me if he had any hope, it would be to be remembered for civil rights. And the incredible thing is that in the last months of his life, he had suffered a, a nearly fatal heart attack, so he was in a lot of pain. He had an oxygen tent in his bed, and they were opening the civil rights papers in a December of 72 in his library, and he wanted to go to give the, the speech. And his doctor said, you can't go. I mean, you, you're just in terrible shape. And there was a big ice storm the night before, and he had his chauffeur driving. He said, I'm going. I don't care if this is it. I'm going. And then the chauffeur was driving too slowly. He took the wheel of the car, <clears throat> even though he hadn't been driven, driving anybody, but he hadn't been driving himself for months. And he steps up on the platform, and he's in such pain that he has to put a nitroglycerin tablet into his mouth. And he gives a really wonderful speech. He just says, we're not here. It's a symposium to celebrate his civil rights stuff. I don't want to just hear about what we've done. We haven't done nearly enough. Until the black and white man stands on an equal platform, we will not have done what we need to do. And, and then he just said, I wasn't early to come to this civil rights thing, but now that I'm there, it's the most important thing. And then six weeks later, he dies. That was his last public statement. Doris, thank you. We're going to wrap up our next episode highlighting the traits of all four in Doris Kearns Goodwin's new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. Thank you, Buzzy. Thanks to Doris Kearns Goodwin for sharing her insights from her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, now available from Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening to Healthy Paranoia with Buzz Knight. Steady production guidance provided by Boston Beasley Media Group's Mark Clark.